The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the most nutritious hour of business talk all week. This is Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. Your host and moderator is Bonnie D. Graham. You'll hear from the innovators who have learned to use game-changing technologies to shake up the status quo and help move today's businesses in new directions. Now, here's Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the Game Changers, you are in the right place. Today's buzz, a serious topic, pharmaceutical supply risks. Today, more often than is known or is acceptable, a required antibiotic or a drug for a chronic disease cannot be delivered on time or at all. Think about it. Serious issue. If you were the one waiting for the drug and somebody said, well, the pharmaceutical company just can't deliver it, that would be a problem. You might be angry, you might be upset, and very frustrated. It could be life-changing or life-threatening. But let's fast forward to the future. Personalized medicine. If you haven't heard about it yet, it's coming down the pike little by little. That's when a medication, a therapy, a treatment is tailored for one patient or a small group of patients. It can be dire. It is needed now. What if the supply chain cannot deliver it? We've assembled a panel of experts from around the world to help us talk about this issue and find out what's happening and what can be done. So first up, I'd like to welcome Julian Amy. He is the University of Warwick's Acting Director for WMG's Professional and Executive Programs, and he'll explain all that. And Julian has sent me a fascinating quote from the $6 million man. Let's go back in time, 1973. This was adapted from Martin Caden's novel, Cyborg. It became six made-for-TV movies and an ABC Network TV series from 1974 to 78. And here is the quote from the opening. Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. We have the capability to make the world's first bionic man. Steve Austin will be that man, better, stronger, faster. Wow, I want to go there, Julian. I want to be part of that world. Oh, maybe we already are. Julian, Amy, welcome. How are you, Julian? I'm, I'm fine, thank you, Bonnie, and thank you for such a dramatic rendition of the quote. <laughs> Oh, I'm honored to have such an interesting quote to be dramatic about. So tell me, this is certainly going back in time. And I remember watching that series. I don't know if you're old enough or you just found out about it later on. But tell me, we're talking today, Julian, about pharmaceutical supply chain and risks of delivering medication. Serious topic. How does this have to relate to, how does it relate to this wonderful quote from the $6 million man? Yeah. Well, firstly, sorry that it's a cheesy quote, and you probably see it as just typical <laughs> British ironic humour. Um, but it actually started when I was actually having in my mind, you know, the fact that we're going through technological changes at the moment. And I've got this ringing in my ears that we have the technology, we have the capability. I had to go away and look it up, and it was almost with horror that I found that it actually came from the $6 million man, and all those childhood memories came back up. I have to emphasize, I was 
very young at the time when I was watching Of it. course you um, were, dear. Uh, so but, was I. In the womb. We were, but, we were in the womb, but, Julian. Yes, go ahead. Oh, not quite. But, but um, I mean, basically, we're seeing a revolution happening um, around us at the moment, not only in terms of what's happening in computing, sensor technology, data handling, data capture, but also in what's happening with human biology. There's advances in areas like genomics, proteomics, and all, all the other omics. And I guess where I'm coming from is around, well, do we as an industry have the capability to really run our supply chains effectively? And I don't mean by that just the physical capability, the hardware. Um, I mean the software, the people skills, uh, people capable of handling complexity, people of handling the networks, the human contact needed for good supply chain management. Because at the same time as we're talking about this growing complexity, I still see pharmaceutical companies today wrestling with common problems. You talked about some of the supply issues. They're mm-hmm. wrestling with those just with basic small molecules. And it's not going to get easier as we move to large molecules or the more complex world we're entering. So that's why I said it, there's a lot about technology, but there's a huge amount about we've got to build capability in our people and in the industry. Thank you, Julian. Great input and great start to our topic. And welcome again. And let me go to our second panelist. He is Dr. Joseph Pakowski, co-founder and CEO of the Camelot Consulting Group. And we have another movie reference, this one from iRobot, a 2004 film starring Will Smith as Detective Del Spooner and Alan Tudyk as Sonny. And let me read this. I think Sonny is the robot. Here's the quote. Detective Del Spooner says, you are just a machine, an Imitation of life. Can a robot write a symphony? And Sonny replies, can you? Well, there's a good retort. Joseph, welcome. How are you? Thank you very much. Hi, Bonnie. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Welcome, Joseph. Talk to me. Interesting quote from iRobot. Is that one of your favorite movies? It's not my favorite movie, but one of the movies which inspired me quite uh, strongly to think about the future in healthcare and life sciences, when the automation, robotics, and artificial intelligence will move, and in what speed it will move into our daily lives. Um, so the question is, how far is this away from um, our near future? So maybe not the sunny uh, uh, example, but the soft robots, which maybe can be used to, in, in our home care, healthcare environment, uh, supporting elderly people, um, uh, moving us uh, and supporting us in a simple environment. Um, and of course, there's always a question yeah? can this replace human being? And Bonnie, I can hear you thinking um, mm-hmm. is this possible? No, probably. You say no, but um, how far are we from this uh, automation and uh, robotic support in our healthcare environment? 
Thank you very much, Joseph. I love the quote. I, I feel like I'm back in time with the two of you, with Julian, with the $6 million man and iRobot. Well, one is back in 73, the other's in 2004. And here we're talking future looking. Let me bring on our third panelist. Let's see what he thinks about all of this. Well, we have a quote from Steve Jobs, and our third panelist is Jack Schmidt. He's responsible for identifying emerging industry trends and guiding SAP solution investments in these innovative areas at SAP. Here's the quote. We've had it before, Jack. And I love it. It's so appropriate for today. You you give me this quote from Steve Jobs. That's been one of my mantras, focus and simplicity. Simple can be harder than complex. You have to work hard to get your thinking clean to make it simple. But it's worth it in the end because once you get there, you can move mountains. Jack Schmidt, Schmidt welcome. How are you? I'm doing great, Bonnie. Thanks for having me. Delighted. So talk to me. So we had quotes from two old movies, and then we've got Steve Jobs, who, by the way, Jack, just a point of reference, the day we started Coffee Break with Game Changers was the same day Steve Jobs passed away, October 5th, 2011. Just a weird coincidence. So how did you pick this quote for our topic today, Jack? Well, I think, Bonnie, you know, I don't know if the quote actually made it into the movie, but, um, um, you know, the quote reflects, you know, where I am in my life to a certain extent. And I have a lot of things going on. I have a busy career. I have a busy family life with young children. I have elderly parents to take care of. And it struck me that I really need to simplify things. It's just I can't keep up. And so that quote's inspired me in the way I kind of try to approach problems and, and fixing things in my own life and it's you know something we we think about it i think about it at work as well and i think many of our customers think about that and of course the topic we're discussing today in the complexity of supply chain i think it applies very well to kind of get us kicked off and thinking about how to address that complexity and when we do how much more effective we can be in, in solving the problems that lie ahead of us very interesting. Jack, talking about in my opening about personalized medicine, do you think that's leading pharmaceuticals into simplicity or is that going to make the whole process of development and testing and delivery and, and getting them to the patients and to what I call the small patient groups? Is it going to be more difficult than mainstream medicine, if I can use it that way? What are your thoughts? Well, I think personalized medicine certainly can be more difficult than mainstream medicine. I mean, we do Mm -hmm. have examples today where companies make rare disease pharmaceutical products for small patient populations, but they're still just, you know, mass produced just at a smaller scale. But the future of personalized medicine, you know, and then we see some breakthrough medicines, maybe not approved by the FDA yet, but getting very close to that with some very interesting clinical results where, where, for instance, you know, a patient donates their blood. Uh, and a biopharmaceutical company enhances their T-cells and reinfuses that patient's blood back to that patient to actually fight their, their cancer. And it's so that the front end of that process is similar to a blood donation, except the mm-hmm. industry now needs to track that and manufacture or enhance that blood and reinfuse it in that exact same patient. It's not a donation to be used across the supply chain. It's a, it's a donation that's actually reinfused in the, in the patient. So it's much more complex. Mm-hmm. And companies are thinking about how to do this, and we certainly are, are not at scale yet, so that's good. We have time to work on it, but it certainly presents some unique challenges. It certainly does. Is the supply chain today broken? Let's just get that on the table. Jack? Yes. Um, yes, it's broken in pharmaceuticals. It's not efficient. It's not effective. It costs too much. Uh, we throw too much product away. We don't get enough product to patients across the world for, for the, prop, the diseases they need. It's definitely... Uh, If it's not broken, it's definitely in need of a major overhaul and repair, in my opinion. 
it needs medication. It needs to be cleaned <laughs> up. It, need, it, it needs a boost. Uh, Julian, I'm going to ask you the same question before we end Joseph as well, before we go to our What's in Your Cup today, which is our storytelling segment. Julian, Amy, do you agree that the pharmaceutical supply chain is in dire straits? It's in trouble and it needs, it needs a, I, a drug to I, fix I, it? I don't, I, don't, I don't think I see it quite as bleakly as Jack. I think certainly it's in the box of could do better on the school report. But I actually think it's improved a long way over the last 10 years when I think back of what parts of the industry were like in terms of running really inefficient supply chains with very high inventories and high costs. I actually think it has got a lot better than where it was. You could say it was coming from a very poor starting point. Mm -hmm. Um, It's got better. It's got leaner. It's got faster and people are starting to understand some of those concepts in their supply chain but there's still a lot of to do and something that we haven't yet mentioned is all of this needs to be done against the regulatory backlog of yes. what you need to have in order to satisfy regulatory agencies around patient safety the security of manufacture the quality standards that need to go into the supply chain and that's certainly an area in terms of regulatory management and quality where the industry still has room for improvement. And some of those issues are what's caused some of the supply shortages over the last few years. Thank you, Julian. As you and Jack were talking, Joseph, I'll get to you in a second. I'm thinking of, uh, I'm reading that a lot of well, there's a big issue with throwing away unused medication. That's what I wanted to bring up. So talking about supply chain, we're trying to get the meds that are expired out of people's medicine cabinets, out of dumps, out of dumpsters, out of the reach of people who might get to them. So we've got a problem delivering the drugs, and we have too many drugs. Then what do we do with the ones that shouldn't be taken by anybody? Then we've got kids mixing drugs at pharma parties, they call them, where they just put them in a snifter and everybody, oh, I like the pink pill, I like the green pill, I like the yellow pill, and then we re- we see about it on detective shows and police shows that, that all the overdoses, I, I'm not trying to paint a horrible picture here, but, but the, the whole delivery of getting them there in time to the right people in the right way and then getting rid of them when they're not used seems to me to be a, a whole circle of pharmaceutical delivery. I don't know if, if the supply chain we're talking about involves the post-delivery problem, if that's something else. Joseph Pekowski, any thoughts on what we've been talking about? Love to hear your point of view here. Um, I believe the development which we have in pharma uh, in the recent years, um, moving our supply chains, really improving the supply chains and, and stabilizing the supply chains has made it dramatically uh, in, in, in improvements in the way forward. But I personally believe we are getting so quickly in the so-called VUCA environment, VUCA environment in the pharma industry, the complexity, the uncertainty, uh, the volatility mm-hmm. is so increasing based on the fact we have so huge product differentiation in our product portfolios, in our global markets we are serving, or the uh, tightly linked uh, global networks requires coordination and management of the supply chains, which in a way we don't have today in, in, in place. We have 
processes, organizations, governance systems for more stable environment. But the environment is changing dramatically. It's dynamic. Mm -hmm. It's getting really, really dynamic. And this is something which are now facing our organizations in, in the supply chains in the pharma world, uh, which requires what I call paradigm change. We need a really radical change. We have to put volatility, uncertainty in this complexity in the middle of our coordination management of, of the supply chains. Rather than improving continuously, step by step, adding um, improvements to, to do our plannings, to our coordination, to our data management and so on, we need a radical rethinking and that's where my starting point is when it comes to the supply chain in the pharma industry. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, Joseph. I'm going to circle around. Let's not talk about, well, I don't know if caffeine is a drug, but we're going to talk a little bit about your favorite coffee or other related beverages. We've got to keep on theme here. So I'm going to circle back to Julie and Amy. Julian, where are you calling from today? And either what's in your cup, if it's really interesting, or what are you planning to drink after the show? Julian? <laughs> uh, well, it's the afternoon here in England at the moment. Um, so I'm Sorry um, to confirm the uh, the English stereotype. I'm actually drinking a cup of tea at the moment. Um, it's actually a cup of Redbush tea. Um, I used to be in the situation that I used to drink really large amounts, probably excessively large amounts of, of caffeinated coffee and caffeinated tea. Uh, but a few years ago, I developed a heart condition, atrial oh. fibrillation, and um, my cardiologist... Uh, basically advised me I needed to stop drinking caffeine. Oh. Um, so, basically, I now drink uh, quite a bit of Red Bush tea instead, but it's naturally de decaffeinated. And if, if you're not familiar with Red Bush, it's, um, it's also referred to as Ruibos or Bushman's tea. So, it, it comes from sort of uh, bushes, uh, which you find in Africa, and it actually tastes a lot better than... Uh, that's gone through chemical decaffeination processes. I, I, yeah. I should hasten to add, though, the advantage of it being the afternoon here in England is that by the time the sun goes below, that by the time this recording ends, the sun will probably have gone below the yard arm. So um, I might well have a glass in my hand with something stronger in about an hour or so's time. And will your cardiologist <laughs> approve that something stronger, Julian? Uh He's never going to find out, will he? <laughs> but my dear, you're on you're on radio. Somebody somebody is going to tell oh, him. By drats. the way, oh, oh, drats. Yes, drats. I know. Listen, I looked up red bush tea, and it looks like is it the same as Roibos or R O O I B O S? Yes, that's, that's Yes, yes. The, uh, we've had somebody talk about this. The leaves are used to make an herbal tea named rooibos or bush tea, especially in southern Africa, or sometimes red bush tea, especially in Great Britain. Very interesting. Uh, there are all kinds of articles exactly. here on WebMD. talks about its uses, its effectiveness, its side effects. We won't go there. I'm just glad you found something <laughs> that you can enjoy. And Tetley in the UK manufactures flavor, flavored rooibos tea. So there, anybody <laughs> could look that up. It's actually... Quite interesting that Tetley, back to the argument about capability we had earlier, Tetley is actually now owned by an Indian company called Tata, who also owns Jaguar Land Rover. And Tata actually acquired uh, Tetley in order to gain access to freeze drying technology. They, they, they actually moved into tea manufacture in order to acquire capabilities. 
Yes, I see here. Tetley was purchased by the Tata Group in 2000. Most of its business in Asia was introduced with Tata Tea, and the company planned to completely integrate worldwide business with Tata Tea by 2006, and you can look that up. Uh, and it's the second largest manufacturer of tea in the world after Unilever. Well, there's a shock. Thank you for the history and tea lesson very much, Julian. I'm glad you're well, and we will not tell your cardiologist. Don't worry. Your secret is safe. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're welcome, Dr. Joseph Pekowski. Where are you calling from? What time of day is it, and what's in your cup, Joseph? Well, I'm here in uh, Germany, and uh, it's late afternoon, and uh, I'm still drinking the consultant's typical energy drink, coffee, strong coffee, that uh, I hope soon after our uh, conversation we will end the day with uh, preparation for the Oktoberfest and we will Ah. drink some of our excellent beer. Do you have a beer to recommend to us, your favorite at Oktoberfest, Joseph? Anything you want to tell people about? Oh, it's so many beers, and this is actually an interesting topic. Um, we just uh, see how many beer brewers we have. Uh, it's hard to recommend. I'm coming from a small town in, in, in south of Germany, uh, not more than 20,000 people, but we have four breweries. So even in this small town, the whole Bavaria has around about 650 breweries. It's hard to recommend one. Okay, well, thank you. Well, maybe you will tweet that later on when you after Oktoberfest. We'd love to see it at hashtag SAP Radio. Thank you, Joseph. Jack Schmidt, you're somewhere in the U.S. Tell me where, what time of day is it, and tell me, what are you drinking? Hey, Bonnie, I'm in uh, Pennsylvania. It's a beautiful day here. It's a midday for us, so I'm uh, I'm pretty boring. I'm drinking just some water, but uh, a little parallel to Julian's story. I'm just trying to stay healthy, and, you know, I gave up the caffeinated beverages and the, the carbonated beverages and just uh, drink as much water as I can during the day as I kind of track my health with a Fitbit and exercise and and uh, trying to improve my diet as much as I can. So, But, uh, but later on this evening, uh, I will drink a, a Yingling beer, which is brewed here in Pennsylvania, one of the largest uh, family-owned breweries in the U.S. And all of my friends know, no matter where I travel, I always look for a Yingling on the menu and like to have one. So, uh, so I'm hoping that in a few hours uh, later this afternoon, I'll be able to enjoy one of those on the back deck this, this afternoon in Pennsylvania. Well, we applaud all of your health efforts. And by the way, we just did a show on health wearables, the new life changers, question mark, uh, impossible dream or reality with a panel a little while ago on the 199th episode of Coffee Break with Game Changers, Jack. And this is number 200. And I've just looked up your beer. And here is how you spell it. If anybody's curious as to what Jack will be drinking later after his healthy water, it's Yingling. It's Y-U-E-N-G-L-I-N-G, America's oldest brewery and it's located in tampa florida is that right jack yep well actually they're headquartered in pottsville pennsylvania but they they do have a brewery in tampa florida yep they've expanded their geographic reach Okay, well, glad to hear that business is good for them. And as the three of you do not know, they don't let Bonnie have caffeine on radio show days, and I think you already figured out why. So I've just got a nice, cool, clear glass of filtered water here, thanks to Britta, in a pretty cup with a little green straw. And that's just, you can make whatever you want of the green straw. Guess what? We're going to take a break. We are speaking today to Julian Amy at the University of Warwick. We're speaking with Dr. Joseph Pukowski at the Camp. 
Camelot Consulting Group and Jack Schmidt at SAP. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, and you are listening to episode number 200, yay, of Coffee Break with Game Changers Radio presented by SAP. Very important topic, the future of medicine, and we're specifically focusing on pharmaceuticals. Will supply chains be ready for what patients and healthcare professionals need? Are the supply chains broken today? How can they be fixed, repaired, or given a boost in the arm or perhaps a shot in the arm to make them healthier in the future? We have a lot more to talk about in the roundtable. So don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. We'll be right back. Justin, out. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. The time for enterprise mobility is now, according to IDC. By 2013, over 1.19 billion workers worldwide will be using mobile technology, comprising 34.9% of the workforce. The impact of mobility on business is clear. Increasing numbers of business users are expected to handle critical tasks and decision-making in real time, no matter where they are. SAP and Sybase and SAP Company offer mobile applications and underlying infrastructure with integration to SAP systems for secure access to business processes anytime anywhere and on any device www.sap.com we're always talking business talk to an expert call now toll free 866-472-5790 that's 866-472-5790 voice america business network You're enjoying Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. You can send an email to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet your questions and comments during and after the show at Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Coffee Break with Game Changers. Welcome back. You're listening to Coffee Break with Game Changers. As I said in the opening, this is episode number 200, and we're talking about the future of medicine. Will supply chains be ready? My esteemed panelists today are Julian Amy, Dr. Joseph Pakowski, and Jack Schmidt. And we're going to kick off the roundtable with Julian Amy, who is the acting director at the University of Warwick for WMG's professional and executive programs. Julian, I'm looking at the notes you sent me before the show, and I want to focus on our topic of supply chain. So you told me in your notes, many pharma companies have adopted lean, and you went so far as to put the word lean in quotes at their factories. Julian, why don't you expand us for us, please? Okay, thanks, Bonnie. I see that companies in the last 10 years or so have really tried to improve the efficiency of the operation. A lot of them, though, have been using lean ways of trying to drive out costs. And typically, they've been doing that at the factory level. There's a real need to do more with these. By focusing just at cost, companies are actually missing a trick, and they're not joining up their supply chain. They're, they're achieving local optimization. If you're really going to get the benefits 
be. There's some principles there about really looking at how do you drive value from customers? How do you make your activity flow in the supply chain? How do you then drive for perfection? Not just driving out waste from people, but how do you make your supply chain as good as possible? And the trick that people are missing is in terms of coordinating all their different plant items. Pharmaceutical supply chains are typically quite complex. They're global. There's many sources. The productivity flows around the world. And it's actually by synchronizing those supply chains, getting them flow, that you can make your overall supply chain much more efficient and actually really deliver benefits to the customer. And this should actually be able to get deliver better customer service and with lower costs and with lower income. And it's that bit that companies still need to work hard at one. Julian, interesting points. I have a question for you before I bring in Joseph Pikowski and Jack Schmidt into this. Is there ever a blame game in my opening in the first part of the show? I talked about how we aren't really aware of how often drugs are simply not getting to the required source, whether it's chronic disease drugs, whether it's catastrophic illnesses, whether it's uh, antibiotics. They're simply not getting to the patient at all or on time. Is anybody turning around and blaming the pharma factories and saying, hey, uh, let's get this. Uh, let's get this flow going. Let's get this assembly line moving. Put some grease on the gears. Is is it ever coming back to them, or are they uh, are they exempt from that? Oh, oh no, some of those uh, sites and factories can feel a lot of pain. Mm. A lot of times, those factories have got into trouble though because they've had quality issues or regulatory issues. I mean, there have been major shortages. You go back over the last four or five years. Worldwide shortages due to a plant, specific plant in the U.S., which has freeze-drying products, typically high-potency cancer drugs. That caused major shortages, but it was due to really significant regulatory non-compliance issues. But that caused huge amounts of shortages uh, in those supply chains. So, mm. yes, there is a spotlight cast on those plants. People, people, it hurts. Yeah. Yep, serious consequences. Thank you, Julian. Dr. Joseph Pikowski, love to have you chime in on this. Thoughts about the lean pharma factory? Anything related to what Julian introduced? Go ahead, Joseph. Um, what to add? Uh, the lean initiatives, uh, as Julian mentioned, is uh, on, on, on the way in the companies for many years and uh, leverage a lot of, of this uh, uh, added values and, and uh, benefits However, it is managed locally, as I fully agree with Julian. The other part, the end-to-end synchronization of, of, of the supply chain, uh, this is something which we try to connect, we try to create a visibility, end-to-end visibility on it, on our assets and capacities, but also on our stocks, available stock for the patients. And um, based on the fact we have this global supply chain, uh, supply chains. We sliced the task, we sliced the elephant based on our historical uh, availability of technology. We sliced it in a global inventory management and we sliced it in a um, local, local optimized asset management, local production management. And in the times where we have huge volatility and uncertainty in this complexity, 
this is not appropriate for today's problems. This is exactly what I mentioned just before with the need to integrate this both levels of coordination, synchronization of availability of the product on one side and the asset capacity on the other side. We need this integration, visibility, and this is something which we are really lacking at the moment. And this is only the first step. This is the basis to manage volatility in the future in a more integrated way and manage it on both sides, on inventories and capacities. A paradigm change is necessary in our approach we have today. Joseph, I I wanted to give you an opportunity now before Jack chimes in on this to tell us a little bit about Camelot. I know that you are the CEO and co-founder. It's a consulting group, a management consultancy, and you work with the pharmaceutical, chemical, and consumer goods industry. What what do you uh, do as far as supply chain management? What's your role? Actually, supply chain management is a quite a wide area of, of, of uh, work we are serving here on various supply chain strategies and organization, adaptive organization. But at the moment, we are very much trying to get this supply chain coordination, the new supply chain coordination, new supply chain planning, relevant and necessary for this so-called time of uncertain volatility in the, uh, into the organization. This is one of the biggest tasks we do at the moment, and um, new technologies, new environments um, are pushing us into this direction so that we have to react to this upcoming drug shortages. We can't afford it anymore, and therefore some changes in our common work and common common um, adoption of, of technology has to be changed and has to be um, you know, say brought to a new level of uh, visibility, transparency, and agility into the organizations. Mm, we can't do it in the way we did it before. And, and agility is probably a very important word. I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you, Joseph. Jack Schmidt, I know you're waiting patiently in the wings. Thoughts about the Lean Pharma Factory? Absolutely. I mean, I think I agree with the points that Julian and Joseph made. And, you know, Julian and I crossed paths early in my career at AstraZeneca, and they've done some really, really interesting and innovative things in their factory. But I think the point we've made is that, you know, there's opportunity to improve the entire value chain, the entire supply chain. It's still too siloed and sub-optimized, as Julian stated. And and we see lots of opportunities to do this. I mean, let's make no mistake, Bonnie, the the industry is really focused on patient success and and improving patient outcomes. There's a deep passion from almost everybody in the life science and pharmaceutical industry. But there are some structural problems, and the, the, the pace of change has never been faster. Mergers and acquisitions. Uh, company strategies and, and movement to emerging markets have really created a complex supply chain for us. And that's good and bad. You know, we're getting product to more patients than ever, but we do face some structural challenges to do that. And, and improving that is a, is a huge challenge. I mean, in, in the rest of the world, we live in a real-time world, but pharmaceutical needs to catch up, and, and, and uh, it's easier said than done. Uh, I think Julian referred to some of the regulatory challenges, and, and, and because of those challenges, they add some complexity, and, and they, they uh, make us a little bit cautious, and we have to really be error-proof in what we do. And we're moving in that direction, and I see big progress, but it, it's, uh, it's not moving as fast as, you know, for instance, someone who has adopted some consumer technologies, and it probably shouldn't and can't just because of the nature of our business. 
but uh, connecting all the value, the members in the, in the supply chain in real time um, and, and optimizing the entire end-to-end network is certainly technically within our capabilities. And it's only a matter of time, I think, until we get there and really start to uh, see the benefits of this kind of organizational approach. Thank you, Jack. I have a question for you. Where are these pharma la- factories, I was going to say laboratories, where are they located? Are we talking about global? Are we talking well, about everywhere in the world? Where are they mostly? Well, I mean, they're everywhere. Uh, you know, certainly the U.S., Europe, but, but Asia as well. I mean, they're everywhere. Um, you know, the, the supply chains today are truly global. Um, you know, active pharmaceutical ingredients are made in one region of the world, shipped to other places to actually make the pharmaceutical products and maybe packaged in a, in a site closer to the end of, to the consumer, to the end consumer, the patient. So these, these uh, supply chains are truly uh, global supply chains. Some companies have made investments to vertically integrate their supply chain. Other companies have leaned those supply chains out, and they partner with companies that, uh, that supply you know, key components of the supply chain. So it, it varies. Uh, but it's an area that I think is getting increased attention uh, from senior executives. Uh, it's increasingly seen as a source of competitive differentiation. And uh, I'm excited about the future for supply chain. I, I love supply chain. I hope it comes across. I've spent a lot of my career in supply chain. It's a really important area. It's a really fun area. And uh, nothing makes you feel better than when it runs flawlessly and, and patients are, are getting exactly what they need to, uh, to, to get better. Very well put. Jack and Julian and Joseph, if you'll just indulge me for a moment, I just looked up the World Health Organization on the pharmaceutical industry. Can I read? I'm not sure how current this is, but may I read just a little bit of background for all of you? Sure. Okay. They say the global pharmaceuticals market is worth $300 billion a year, expected to rise to $400 billion within three years. Now, again, I don't have the reference point of exactly the uh, the date. Let me see if I can find a copyright. No, it's current, 2015. The 10 largest drug companies control over one-third of this market, several with sales exceeding $10 billion a year and profit margins of about 30%. It's a pretty healthy profit margin. Six are based in the U.S., four in Europe. It's predicted that North and South America, Europe, and Japan will continue to account for a full 85% of the global pharma market well into the 21st century. Companies currently spend one-third of all sales revenue on marketing their products, roughly twice what they spend on R&D. I'm shocked. Jack, is that a shock to you? No, it's, it's not a shock to me, Bonnie. Okay, you want to elaborate just a little bit? <laughs> well, you know, when you talk about marketing, that's, that's a pretty broad, right? And, and educating physicians and healthcare providers about the approved uses for your product is really, really critical because that way uh, healthcare providers can identify issues early, can take the right courses of treatment, and then, you know, so much is changing in our world, you know, um, in, with personalized medicine, with, with therapies which are tailored to either specific patient populations or even a specific disease in a patient. And as a result, you know, we need to spend the kind of uh, resources to make sure that healthcare providers have the kind of information they need to properly diagnose and properly treat patients with the best therapies. And it's all in my mind about making sure you have the best outcome, and the sooner you can get that best outcome, the better for everybody as far as I'm concerned. Thank you. I think we all agree oh, on that. Well, Julian, go ahead. Well, it's, it's, it's Julian. Yes. Can I just come in there? Please do. Um, I mean, I think the numbers don't surprise me. In fact, I'm, I'm familiar with those numbers. I would say that some of the way in which 
the major pharma companies sell drugs has been changing quite significantly over the last few years. The, the big field force models they've been moving away from, and as Jack said, actually it's moved a lot more towards education about the use of product. Um, I think it's also, and I mean, this possibly might be a slightly controversial point. Mm-hmm. We've just got to be a bit careful in some of what we're talking about when you're talking about those revenue numbers. They're numbers about revenue. They don't necessarily reflect volume numbers. And you know, some of the issues we're talking about where you mentioned some of those short, they're very much developed world short. There's a lot of you know, emerging markets, I hesitate to use the word third world markets, where basic access to medicine is still lacking. Those markets are typically provided by generic drugs and the generic manufacturers at quite low prices. And for those markets, they're struggling with basic supply chain management of even reporting things like inventory levels so that they can actually get resupplied with drugs. And that's where there's been great projects like SMS for Life, where you can use mobile phones to transmit stock and consumption data. They're mm-hmm. fantastic projects going on in places like Africa, just to improve the availability of medicines around the world. But I see that all part of the access and the future of medicine, right? not just the sort of half billion to the billion people in uh, the GA country. Thank you, Julian. Good points all. I appreciate that. I want to move to a topic we talked about earlier in the show, and and I think Julian and and, uh, Jack recently mentioned it. And Joseph, I'm looking at your notes. Let's go here. You say we are reaching out to the connected patient for collection and exchange of health and treatment data, but it's not only the watch. I assume you're talking about the Apple Watch or the Fitbit. It's going to be all sorts of different body measurements in the near future using new sensors and semi-invasive techniques to collect enormous amount of body network data. So we're talking about body health in the future. Joseph, can you tell us more, please? Look, this is, a, this is I think, um, a topic which is uh, really buzzwording the whole media at the moment. Uh, mm-hmm. We just had this uh, huge consumer uh, industry in Berlin a few weeks ago, and Philips announced that the CEO of Philips announced a completely new technology, Volt new for the first time ever uh, available. And what is fair, what is behind us, actually is uh, a new um, health navigation app um, connecting consumers um, and, and trying to trigger lifestyle and behavior changes. What we're doing, we're developing apps, and we have around about 400 health apps already available in the market, but we're adding new personalized coaching services to it and uh, are entering really new offerings for patients, and I call them, actually, we're moving into our health consumers' uh, business, collecting more and more data, and this data is a immense, a huge a chance for our industry uh, getting this feedback from the consumer, from the health, through these connected patients. Uh, potential we never had before. We never had possibilities to get the feedback of really uh, of, of, of the end patient consuming our medicine, consuming our drugs. Um, so it's, it's really 
making me uh, energetic, even thinking about it, what could be done here. Technologies can come really with a digital um, possibilities to monitor the health, to support uh, monitoring your own health, and I call it turn your dumb bodies into smart bodies, yeah? creating <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Joseph. Creating... I love that. I love that. <laughs> Turning your dumb bodies into smart bodies. I like that. You've got to love a dumb body if you can turn it into a smart body. Keep, go, go ahead with that thought. Continue, please. Yeah, and of course, what will be the benefit? Where is going to lead us? Um, hopefully, uh, with really uh, individual management of our health, we will be more sensitive for it, and we will get some result of it. There's some estimation I was reading about it. You know, that even a lifetime will be long in the future based on our careful and sensitive management of our own health. And digitalization here, the connected patients apps, and Philips called it health navigation app, will support us here. Uh, great opportunity and creating win-win situations for both for the consumer and creating on the other side great opportunity for the industry, getting the feedback data into pharma companies, and this will be a huge potential for our supply chains. We will get more patient-centric um, services than to the patient because we know more about him, and that's a great opportunity. It is a great opportunity, and it's exciting, and I want to hear what Jack Schmidt has to say. Jack, thoughts on this? I'm excited about it as well, Bonnie. I mean, you know, I've read some statistics lately that, uh, you know, 50% of patients don't adhere with their health care provider's directions around taking medications, for example. Mm-hmm. And that's a surprisingly large number. I don't know that that's, that that's the same in every market, but that's a, that's a number that's widely quoted and every pharma company understands adherence is a major issue for them. And it's hard to believe, you know, you spend 10 years developing a drug and a billion dollars plus in developing a drug, and then patients don't take it and, and don't get better, and it's got to be frustrating. So connecting with a, a digital uh, applications with, uh, with the kind of things that Joseph has been talking about to improve outcomes is really, uh, really exciting. And uh, you know, who, everybody wants to get better, and if you have to modify, help a person provide feedback to modify their behavior to get a really uh, a, a better outcome, that reduces the cost of health care. I can't believe anybody wouldn't want to do that. And, you know, at the end of the day as well, Bonnie, to a certain extent, we're all walking clinical trials. Not every drug works the same in everyone. But if you can use this kind of capability to actually collect information on patients and, and therapies and outcomes, you know, you can improve the overall healthcare system as well, both outcomes and costs. And I guess uh, that's an exciting proposition for many, many of us as well. It certainly is. Julian, I want to get your two cents on this, and, and uh, we have to move quickly because we're almost at our predictions round. Yeah. Julian, talk to me. Yeah. It's a fascinating area. I think Jack and Joseph have really summarized it very effectively. I think it's also something where all this data coming back sensors is really going to become a major application of big data, the way you can then run analytics on those data sets. I think I love some of Jack's work. The key thing is about how you may change people's behavior and patient's behavior. That's the active test. Getting feedback based on the data, how does it affect them? Oftentimes, the only times patients truly comply with a drug is actually during a clinical trial. You actually find that their adherence subsequently is quite poor. 
before. There's things which change behaviour. It seems to give feedback to the clinician about how the patient's doing. Things mm-hmm. which actually give the patient prompt to take the medication. That's going to be wonderful. Thank you very much. And guess what? Jack, I'm going to move ahead to cover a topic that's near and dear to you before we go into our predictions round. And we've talked about it several times, but I'd love to hear your passion for this. It's personalized medicine. I included it in my opening, and you say, how will supply chains need to adapt? Really important question. You're talking about moving the supply chain in the pharma industry from a one-to-many model to a one-to-one model. What does this mean for supply chain? How much time will it take for them to get up, literally up to speed of delivering one-to-one meds? Jack? Well, I think, Bonnie, it's going to be it's a big change, but companies understand this uh, for certain therapeutic categories and certain products. They, they see the future, and I know some companies that are investing in specific assets, pharmaceutical you know, manufacturing facilities, biotech manufacturing in particular, to address this challenge. But there's some really exciting things happening close to where I live at the University of Pennsylvania around leukemia and uh, some products that have been fast-tracked by the FDA, and they're not approved yet, but the clinical results are very, very impressive for people who really have no other options. And so some pharma companies have licensed technology and are developing technology that will actually go to a point where, you know, they withdraw a patient's blood, they enhance the T cells in a patient's blood and reinfuse that back in that same patient to fight that patient's, you know, specific disease, uh, cancers in this mm-hmm. case. And, and, you know, with a high rate and high probability of success, this is very, very exciting. And, but it puts more pressure certainly on the supply chain when you know you've got this product and this process and it, and it has to be tightly managed with high quality and time is of the essence because a person's really depending on this for their very survival. And I think it's, uh, I think it's going to be somewhat of a challenge, but I, we certainly have the capability, the technologies to do this. It's just adopting some things from maybe other industries in a, into a pharma supply chain, but we've got the best minds working on it. And I'm very optimistic that this is not going to be a problem, and I'm very optimistic that the results will be fantastic one day. Thank you, Jack. And, you know, this goes back to the quote you gave us in the opening segment from Steve Jobs. And the second part of that quote was, you have to work hard to get your thinking clean, to make it simple, but it's worth it in the end because once you get there, you can move mountains. And I think you just described that in terms of special therapies for leukemia patients and other cancers. Thank you very much. Uh, We're just about ready for predictions, but I'm going to open this up very quickly for one-minute comment on personalized medicine from Julian and then from Joseph before we go to predictions. So, Julian, just a one-minute thought on what Jack just shared, please. I think there are individual opportunities like Jack described for truly personalized individually. I actually think what we're more likely to see is what I would describe as stratified medicine, where you're more Mm. likely to find, based on genomics, that certain types of patients respond to a drug. What's that likely to be? The the molecules will still get approved, but probably in smaller patient subsets, much more targeted, and you'll get a, a clinical response. So the industry needs to become capable of supplying smaller volume, which comes back to Joseph's point about more frequent cycles of manufacture, smaller batch sizes, and that's where some of the exciting work going on exploring new continuous semiconductor manufacturing process, full-scale manufacture. That's really exciting in terms of how are you going to change the supply chain. Thank you. Julian, I'm going to... Sorry, sorry, I'm going to... Con- okay. 
Okay. I'm going to consider that your prediction because we're just about out of time, and I love it, and it's perfect for, for our crystal ball for what's coming up and the fact that you're excited about that. Joseph, I'm going to give you 60 seconds for your prediction. Go ahead. I'm very sure that a new connected patient with the new big data in respect of a big body health data will become the new feedstock for the life science industry 4.0 and makes me exciting what the impact on all our supply chains, R&D, go-to-market marketing will change through this new feedstock, feedstock data. Thank you, Joseph. Very important information. And Jack Schmidt, I saved you for last. Go ahead. 60 seconds predictions. What do you see coming down the pipe or the supply chain? I, I agree with uh, some of the comments that, that Julian and Joseph both made, the stratified approach. I mean, we're going to see uh, patients who are able to be cured uh, and in the very near future of very specific types of, of uh, disease. You know, when they've got a biomarker and we've got a great treatment, to, to we can correct or cure that problem. I think we're going to see, see that's not too far off in the future. And um, I also see a future where we'll actually be able, be able to take some maybe early intervention, maybe using some of the biomarkers, maybe using some patient information, but maybe early intervention someday to actually prevent diseases. And I've done some reading and some, and some work on areas like postpartum depression as an example. And I hope that in a not too distant future that uh, we'll not only cure disease, but maybe even prevent specific diseases from ever really occurring and impacting a person's quality of life. Now, wouldn't that be a beautiful thing if we could just prevent the disease from occurring in the first place? Isn't that really where we need to be heading everywhere? Yeah, it with sure the, would be exciting. It would be exciting, and it would be such a sigh of relief around the world. That's what we need to do. I want to say a special thank you to my three wonderful guests. Julian, Amy, thank you so much. Dr. Joseph Pakowski, thank you. And Joseph, we have to do a shout-out to Uwe Eisinger, who worked with us on your appearance. Uwe, Thank you so much for your support and Jack Schmidt at SAP and a shout out to Justin at the Business Channel team for getting us on the air. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. This has been the 200th episode. Wow. Of Coffee Break with Game Changers. Go have a cup of something interesting. And here's my call to action as always. Fasten your celebration seatbelt. I'll put a red bow on it or something. What are you waiting for? Like my three panelists today, I want each of you to go out and be a game changer today. Bonnie D. Graham signing off. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the Coffee Break conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag pound sign S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. Please join your host, Bonnie D. Graham, again next Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.